Welcome to the discussion, a holistic approach to reopening agency offices, sponsored by Force 3. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion today. We're doing something a little different. We're focusing on how the Homeland Security Department is preparing to reopen its offices and continue to take advantage of the successes it achieved in having employees work remotely. My guests from DHS today are Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer, Karen Evans, the Chief Information Officer, Tom Chalecki, the Chief Readiness Support Officer, and Rich McComb, the Chief Security Officer, all at the Homeland Security Department. We're also joined today by Eric Stahl, the Director of Security and Enterprise at Force 3, and Joe Lazaro, the Practice Manager for Collaboration, also at Force 3. Everyone, welcome to the discussion. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion. The number of agencies starting to bring employees back to the office has slowly been ramping up over the last month or two. The IRS, the State Department, the Environmental Protection Agency are among the agencies that are resuming quote unquote, normal in-office operations as safely as possible. But agencies have a long way to go to create confidence with employees. A June Federal News Network survey found a strong majority of respondents, both federal employees and contractors who are still teleworking, say they are, quote, very uncomfortable with their prospect of returning to their office. And another 15% said they were, quote, slightly uncomfortable with returning to the office. Among the concerns from employees and contractors are how to ensure social distancing, especially in elevators, how to ensure there are plenty of personal protective equipment like wipes, and what to do about common areas like bathrooms and break rooms. While many feel the returning to the office is not, is it maybe an insurmountable challenge, the fact is agencies can use a combination of technology, processes, and data to address many of these uh, challenges. From thermal imaging to address temperature controls to online tools for communications to notify employees to content delivery applications, agencies can create a safe and productive, productive environment. One way agencies like the Homeland Security Department and Education Department have adapted to this current environment is they've changed the way they issue identity or PIV cards to employees. It's almost a touchless alternative but secure technology and derived credentials. Today, we're gonna to hear from one agency, the Homeland Security Department, how they plan to overcome many of these concerns and challenges, reopen offices safely, and continue to take advantage of remote work innovations that have emerged over the last six months. Once again, my guests from DHS are Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer, Karen Evans, the Chief Information Officer, Tom Chalecki, the Chief Readiness Support Officer, and Rich McComb, the Chief Security Officer, all at the Homeland Security Department. We're also joined by Eric Stahl, the Director of Networking and Security at Force 3, and Joe Lazaro, the Collaboration Practice Manager, also at Force 3. Angie, I'm going to turn to you since you are the people person, so to speak. You are the person who are who's really trying to ensure that agencies and, 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 and employees are comfortable. What is the DHS plan to return to the office? And let's, let's walk through that decision-making process a little bit. Sure, thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity to be on to speak to this uh, really important issue for us. So as you can imagine, the health and safety of our workforce is absolutely paramount to ensuring the continuation of our essential functions. And I think it's really important to note, much like the shutdown, about 80% of DHS is um, frontline and is working anyhow and has been working the entire time. So this issue of um, that I think tends to be very DC-centric around telework and all is something that is very important to us and is kind of new to us in, in some ways. But in other ways, we find that within DHS, we have to balance those needs with those employees that have, again, been on the front lines the entire time. So. Really, as COVID-19 continues to present, it's fluid, it's evolving from a safety and health concern for our employees and their families. And this has been a really key focus of ours, is not, not just focusing in on the employees, but what this also means for, for the families as well. So deciding whether and when and how to return to the office, we have decided within DHS is a very local decision. And it would include very different ways of folks to look at this, whether your Customs Border and Protection, TSA, or within the management lines of business, such as uh, within the Chico office, just as an example. And so we've really based this on many factors. You have the public transportation issue that, um, th that we're still exploring. You have the ability to social distance within office spaces, because as you can Imagine many of the office spaces have been condensed with hoteling and things like that. But yet today with social distancing, we've had to come up and be incredibly innovative in how we're going to be able to um, get folks to be able to be back in the office and still be stay safe. And then of course the virus stability is something that we're taking into consideration 
But I would say right now, the number one concern for our employees is really uh, childcare and the homeschooling situation. With so many of the schools in a virtual situation right now, it's really causing our employees a lot of angst over how they're going to, quite frankly, be able to not only work um, full-time, teach their kids, full-time and, you know, heaven forbid, get a little bit of sleep somewhere in between. And so all of those things are the things that we're really taking into consideration as we're trying to work through these issues. There will always be certain jobs that may need to be in the office some days or very specific weeks or not for a while. And so, again, because of that, what we want to do is really encourage maximum flexibility for employees. And really the motto is, maybe it's just been a motto for a long time, but mission first, uh, but people always is something that we're really trying to <clears throat> ensure is at the top of our mind. I do think over time, telework may continue, it may increase or it may decrease. But again, the answer to some of those long-term decisions is not something that we're rushing into or trying to finalize right now. There's plenty of follow-up there. And maybe it's a, something for Tom or Rich to jump into, because as folks do return, and again, going what Angie has said around, for instance, uh, the the office space, how much room there is, how, how do you deal with the fact that the, so much office space has been condensed over the last 15 years or so? What, what, from a readiness support or from a, a security side, how are you all looking at this return to uh, office effort? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great question. This is Tom. I'll, I'll start out and turn it over to Rich. So that's a great question. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to join you today. And it's an issue that every agency is wrestling with right now. And in DHS, it's particularly challenging because, as you know, it's a large organization, 230,000 people nationwide. There is not a one-size-fits-all when you talk about returning to the workplace because there isn't a standard office. As Angie mentioned, we've all been going to work anyway, but in a telework structure. So as we look at when we bring employees back, I mean, obviously, there's the concerns with, uh, with Metro and things along those lines, and, and I can't control that. I mean, we've, we, purchased, uh, we purchased masks for all of our employees to distribute those, but what I can control is when they enter the office, when they enter a DHS space, and that's really uh, the things that we're looking at are the things that everybody, including industry, are concerned with. It's, it's social distancing. It's, uh, you know, how do you maintain distancing in front of an elevator lobby, two people within an elevator, touchless buttons. And then when you get inside the office, um, we are largely an open office. So what we've done is we've divided our workforce up into a cohort of 30% each, roughly 33%. So uh, we'll, we can distance with, within our desks, uh, minimize uh, conference room capacity to about 25% of what it was. Fitness centers, for instance, within buildings, uh, you know, limit the capacity there to 25% as we come back in. So, and then we've modified our furniture contracts to add things like screens and barriers between workstations and sanitation places and things along those lines, as well as increasing, uh, you know, the, the, the disinfectants throughout the office that you can do that. So, we can't make it risk-free, but we can certainly make it safer than, than, than it was. Uh, and again, as Angie mentioned, it's really going to be on the individual offices. Uh, CBP is going to make their determinations. Uh, TSA is going to make their determinations. And, and for us, an off, largely an office building, as well as what we're doing out at St. Elizabeth's, we'll make those determinations. But you know, we're going we're gonna to bring folks back when it makes sense. No one has a crystal ball as to, as to how this thing's going to evolve and, and when will we have a vaccine? Does, does, does that change things? But I think, you know, the discussions we've had, Jason, up till now is, has been, well, shouldn't we do this? Shouldn't we reduce? Shouldn't we have more size? I've got a hundred million square foot portfolio. Uh, real property doesn't change on a dime. We have to, we need to design for the future, not for the moment. Uh, so we will fix what we have right now. We have no plans for large-scale furniture movements. But as we do construction, as we do leases, we're certainly going to look at what does the workplace of the future entail and adapt that way. But that's going to be a multi-year strategy, to be honest with you. So in the meantime, we're, we're taking it, dealing with what, the, what spaces we have right now. And largely, it's a manage the workforce issue rather than an infrastructure issue. Um, uh, over for me. Tom, there's so many uh, uh, 
pieces and parts, I could dig into that. But l let me bring in uh, Rich here for a second, because from a security perspective, you that, that plays another role in it, because there's a lot of discussion about, okay, well, when I when an re employee returns the office, what's going to happen from a physical security perspective? And then that will also tag us back to bringing Karen into the discussion, because that then connects back to the network and the infrastructure. But um, start us off with, with this idea of, of the, the physical security side. And, and Rich, jump in here. Sure. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, like everybody else, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to you all today. So uh, from a physical security perspective, uh, as Tom alluded to, uh, there's lots of uh, different facilities, lots of different uh, customers and stakeholders that engage in those facilities. We've got some very public facing facilities across the department, got, you know, primarily headquarters. So uh, absolutely one size fits all does not work. So from a physical security perspective, along with uh, operational security, we've put out uh, you know, some broad guidance to the department so that each component uh, in each locality can implement those things uh, as it works best for their particular mission set and the populations that go in and out of their, uh, their facilities. But some things that we've done to help facilitate that return and to minimize potential exposure is, uh, you know, we provide guidance with regard to, um, uh, you know, uh, contact, contactless entry minimizing the use of pin, uh, pin entry for those uh, facilities that don't require uh, use of a pin. So we've taken a risk-based approach to that. Uh, we've uh, provided guidance for uh, access control entry into the facilities. Uh, I, you may, may want to talk about this separately, but you know, the screening procedures for getting into a facility. What, are, what is kind of the standard in working with uh, the partners in the Federal Protective Service or uh, other contract security uh, organizations that may be at your facility. Uh, we've, uh, you know, given guidance with regard to uh, access to our classified spaces. Uh, obviously, a, a large part of what DHS does is, is in the classified arena, so that has to be part of our, our calculus. And uh, some of the other things that we've done to help facilitate that is, uh, you know, whether it's indoctrinating folks into uh, their, uh, their, uh, their, uh, security uh, that allow them to have access we've uh, we've done that virtually so that uh, to kind of uh, on the theme that Angie talked about bringing folks back very slowly we uh, we're setting up the security system so that we don't have to bring people back in physically to get that virtual indoctrination we've also as you alluded to uh, did uh, develop what we call the drive alternate credential which allows people who may be at higher risk or otherwise don't need to come into a facility to perform their work because they're going to be primarily doing it in a remote environment. We developed a credential that allows them to get their government furnished equipment, get their credential, and be able to get the network access without physically coming into the, uh, the organization to get a uh, you know, personal identification uh, 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 card. So that's uh, reduced the amount of folks that needed to come into uh, to the facilities uh, where it made sense. As Angie alluded to, a lot of our uh, workforce across DHS is, is frontline employees. So uh, they need not only the logical access, but they need physical access to do their jobs on the front line, whether it's in the airports or whether it's on the border. So a lot of those folks have continued to have to come into the facility. So once again, not a one size fits all, but what we try to do is minimize the contact uh, uh, on, from an access control perspective, get some general guidance with regard to screening uh, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, continue to mitigate that and uh, uh, plan for the throughput increases, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, at a, at a public facing facility or primarily headquarters facility. I know when we had heard about the derived credentials, PIV card change up in you, education department, I'm sure other agencies have taken that on. It was one of those uh, really good news stories because I know for years people had uh, I'll use the word complained about the, the having to go in the office, having to prove who they are, be able to do that remotely, I think was a real innovation. So uh, kudos to you and, and the other agencies were able to kind of adapt and, and, and continue to learn. And all this is not possible without obviously the, the technology infrastructure to support that. So let me bring in Karen Evans, the CIO from DHS, to talk a little bit about how you're supporting all these different needs and, and requirements that people like Rich and, and Tom and, and Angie are putting on top of, of, of the network. So good morning, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with my fellow CXOs. So this is actually, this is pretty exciting. This panel's pretty exciting. And, um, and I would like to say that they, uh, 
they may not agree here, but they totally embraced me in the in bringing me in um, because my first day was June first, so I'm I came on board right in the middle of all of this. So there, and I think Tom has said it right about the workplace for the future, and in looking at a lot of the activities and what's happening with the infrastructure. CIOs have been prepared for the workforce and the workplace of the future. Uh, the opportunity now is for us to be able to really truly demonstrate what those capabilities mean. So a lot of things that DHS did was really leverage uh, cloud, the network infrastructure, the things that, that they have been moving toward for modernization. And what we've done is, is like we really haven't missed a beat. Um, our boss, Mr. Alice, has made it really clear that DHS never did shut down, that we just moved our workforce into a more virtual environment. And with that, um, it, it, it adds a lot, but the, the network got to spin up. And so we can maintain over 120,000 concurrent VPN connections, which really then helps uh, facilitate a lot of the issues that you're hearing from Angie, from Tom. Um, and from um, Rich as well as the security issues. And, and we work really closely. I, I, I want to bring up this one piece as we're talking about um, you know, how the security issues are in the physical security. The whole landscape now has changed and the threat landscape has changed. And so this partnership that you're seeing across the board with all of us, I mean, that has changed the whole way that we're looking at what is happening within the network infrastructure as well. Karen, there's obviously a lot to dig out there, but let me bring in our folks from Force 3 a little bit because I want to bring in, have them a little bit respond to what they're hearing, but also what they're seeing from, from their customers. And, and maybe I'll turn to Eric to start with. Uh, Eric, your role at Force 3 obviously is around the networking and security side of it. So what, give me the initial reaction from what you're hearing from DHS, but also what are you seeing from your uh, customers? Thanks, Jason. Uh, as, as Jason mentioned, I am the director of networking and security, and my role tends to focus around keeping people secure and maintaining work all the way through. And like everyone on the, the panel has mentioned, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I mean, each agency and each component has their own specific sets of challenges and directives, be it whether they have a, mo a, mo a vastly mobile workforce or a mostly in-person experience. Um, trying to find ways to, to leverage technology to enable that is the biggest challenge. Now, is that finding ways to, to guide people through the office using Bluetooth technology to, to give them a directed path, uh, have visual presentation of building populations and their capacity on a screen so that employees can have a sense of comfort as to whether or not they're being taken care of and those physical uh, security controls are being met. Or as Karen alluded to, now that you have 100,000 VPN users, how does that scale your network? How do you get those resources? And how do you ensure that security controls that were in place in the office are also in place at every individual's desk? Uh, those types of challenges are where we're seeing the, the biggest amount of effort being put in place. And again, each one of those solutions could be a little different on a case-by-case -case basis. And then quickly, Joe, just bring you into the conversation and then before we have to take a quick break, the collaboration you see among DHS is obviously heartwarming in many ways, and, and, but, but in many ways it has to happen. Otherwise, there cannot be a successful return to the office. Yeah, definitely. And something Tom had mentioned, and it really resonated on the cohorts, right, dividing the office up and limiting some of those shared spaces to 25% capacity. What I'm seeing some of my customers do is leverage the, the video security systems they have in place to, to do analytics, to do things like people counting. So you actually can, can, can have a, a, a true snapshot of the density of population. Um, one agency I'm working with is actually leveraging their VTC conference rooms that have idle cameras to do people counting. So you're defining for each room a threshold. If the system um, recognizes that there's more people in that room than should be, will actually trip and, and notify, uh, you know, building security, building safety to um, address that issue. So uh, facial recognition has come a long way. Challenge I've seen in some of these systems is facial recognition with masks on is not something that's really been a problem previously. Uh, we're seeing that come, come to light now. So I know industry has put a, a lot of work forth to tweak the software to, to make it better and smarter, um, but, it's, but it's certainly still a challenge. 
if you have an iPhone, you know that uh, newer iPhone, you know that pain of trying to, uh, you have to remember your code and get it right. But anyways, that's a whole different story. Let's take a quick break. We then can continue our conversation. You're listening to the panel discussion, a holistic approach to reopening agency offices sponsored by Force 3 on Federal News Network. Whether your teams are going back to the office or working remote, the top priorities are to keep employees safe and the business of government running smoothly. The right security and collaboration technology can help your teams be successful no matter where they are physically located during these challenging times. Force 3 has been the trusted technology partner for civilian agencies and the DOD for over 25 years. Learn what we can do for you at force3.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, a holistic approach to reopening agency offices sponsored by Force 3 on Federal News Network. We're doing something a little different today. We're talking with the folks from the Homeland Security Department and Force 3. So let's start with the folks from the Homeland Security Department. Angela Bailey is the Chief Human Capital Officer. Karen Evans is the Chief Information Officer. Tom Chalecki is the Chief Readiness Support Officer. And Rich McComb is the Chief Security Officer, all from the Homeland Security Department. We're also joined by Eric Stahl, the Director of Networking and Security at Force 3, and Joe Lazaro, the Collaboration Practice Manager, also at Force 3. And I'm Jason Miller. So today, again, the focus on the Homeland Security Department and bringing employees safely back to the office when, when appropriate, when ready. And that first segment, Karen, let me start with you about the technology side. We heard a lot of changes to the infrastructure. We heard how you had to really use a, the partnership in many ways across the CXO community to ensure that the technology infrastructure supporting their needs, but at the same time, you also had to worry about the technology, make sure it was, it was up to par. So walk me through some of the things you're seeing over the last four, five, six months and how the infrastructure has seen such a huge increase in, in almost every, every bit, and, bit and bite that comes through. Well, in changing, and, and I appreciate that question because it's not just across with uh, the lines of business that you're at headquarters, but this is also a partnership all the way down through the components and other CIOs within the department as a whole. So, for example, when we had to change to this environment, uh, ICE brought up 15,000 remote users in less than three days in order to be able to adapt to this changing work. Uh, place. So what we're seeing because of the cloud implementation, because of the activities that have happened in modernization, for example, the virtual desktop that we're all using now, we're seeing a 255% increase. We've actually looked at some of the statistics and looking in the last 30 days, we have over 438% use of um, teams of the virtual desktop and what we see on a daily basis is the collaboration tools that we're using. We've added new functions in there. As people are using these tools, it's highlighting more and more issues associated with making sure that we're dealing with the rules that are in the government that were a little bit easier when you were in the workplace. Now we're in the virtual environment. We've been adapting these tools. And so over 59% of our users are active in what is Teams which is um, the Office 365 tool that we've moved out so that we can then collaborate across uh, headquarters, but also down into the components and then out to our users, and that our frontline people have the ability to collaborate among themselves when they're out doing the mission of the department. And it's not just about the technology and the use of Teams, but people are actually using this for, for, to, to meet their goals uh, from a mission side, but also for other sides. Uh, Angie, jump in here a little bit and talk a little bit about the training piece, because that's also seen a huge increase. Sure. Yeah, it really has. And so one of the things that we're noticing is like our training. Well, first of all, we took a lot of the in-house training that was brick and mortar and turned it into, into a virtual um, way of delivering our, our training. And so what we're finding is like we've had like a 300% increase, for example, I think it was in our Stronger Bonds, which is our communications training that we did for couples. Um, and now that that's gone virtual, what's really kind of neat about that is that people are actually finding an opportunity to use it and they're craving it. And so one of the things that we've done is we've been really careful to, to allow the opportunity for not only for the employee to get the training or to hear about benefits and, and such, but it also now has opened up the opportunity because so many uh, partners and spouses and things are at home, family members are at home. It actually allows us now to reach an audience that in the past we weren't able to reach. And so we're finding huge benefits from a training standpoint uh, in this new environment. Hey, Jason, this is Tom. 
I'll jump in here uh, and, and, and talk about what Angie and, and uh, Karen are just saying. So this isn't actually a new thing for DHS. I mean, so we've, we've looked at our portfolio with a national capital region over the past year and, and using PIV card data and, and logical access data, we can look at who's coming into our buildings pre-COVID. And we were finding on average, our buildings were 50 to 60% occupied on any given day. That's not Fridays and Mondays, that's any given day over a long span of time. And that actually is consistent with information that, that GSA and in fact, some other agencies are saying. So we have been doing telework for a while. I mean, shout out to our CIO. They've supported this for quite a while. Now we haven't done it to the magnitude that we're doing it right now. Uh, and obviously our frontline folks out on, the, out on the border and at the airports aren't doing as much of this, but generally in the office spaces, this isn't really a new thing for DHS. So I think it's really just adapting and maybe expanding on some of our past practices. Over. This is Eric Stoll. Tom, just to, to, to reiterate, I think that you're right. A lot of the agencies have had some, some part of a virtualized workforce, but I'm sure as Karen noticed, there's, been a huge uptick in that consumption and that puts a lot of strain on resources that may not have been scaled originally for those types of capacities so how do we adapt that now how do we right size those utilities and those resources not just for today but for what we foresee for the, the near-term uh, future workforce also how can we ensure that we're using the right kinds of resources to secure people so karen mentioned specifically government regulations like cdm that protect us when we're in the office how can we adapt that to the virtualized space? Are we leveraging things like the TIC 3.0 infrastructure and ways to secure those remote workers? Were we already implementing those? How far along that journey are we? And what can we do to speed that up or maybe bring forward some of those investments we are planning on making to make sure we're getting the biggest bang for our buck? Aaron, jump in here because I want you to react to something that maybe Eric said a little bit, which is how do you ensure that you have the right size of, of the capabilities and networks for today, but also for tomorrow and going into the future? And I know you're, as you said, you came to DHS just in June, but I imagine you talked to others within the CIO office and they hopefully did some sort of stress test on the network to figure out, okay, if we go from 40% teleworking or 50% teleworking to 80% teleworking, how do we ensure that the network can handle it? Walk me through some of those ways that you, you were ensure you guys were prepared. So I appreciate the question and, and I'll, um, I'll tag on a couple of these responses, but first and foremost, based on the work that Tom had talked about. So a lot of this work with the build out of St. Elizabeth's, uh, Department of Homeland Security was already planning for the future. So when you start looking at what, what was network modernization or how to be able to scale and move to the cloud, those improvements were already in the pipeline. The, I, I would have to say when you said when I came on board and I talked to the team, um, there are a lot of battle scars associated with that move and the build out. And if you can see Tom, those and and really how that worked and because that was planned for and done correctly, um, the, the ability to scale when, when this hit uh, was second nature. Like it was everything that um, based on my past experience that you had hoped would happen with a network modernization was actually implemented at Department of Homeland Security so that scaling could happen, that plus up could happen, that the workforce could transition, uh, the CIO shop met those requirements. Now, some of the challenges that Eric brought up was, okay, we had designs and we had plans in place that we were gonna execute because we were physically here, They've had to change that and work with the contractors and the partners um, to be able to change, okay, what redesign efforts do we have to look at in order to accelerate CDM implementation? What redesign efforts, if any, do we have to look at because of the mixture of what we have planned for TIC 3.0 and how, how that's working? But as Thomas said, uh, Department of Homeland Security was planning for the future. They, they had a lot of plans in place. What ended up happening was those modernization efforts ended up being accelerated to be able to accommodate. So Office 365, just a little, here's something that's just really very simple. It has a chat function that allows people to talk during meetings. It raised a whole series of policy issues associated with what happens to the chat. Then if we have attorneys on there, what are the right pre, uh, policies? What are the types of things do we have to adapt? 
And the CIO shop worked with the other CXOs and general counsel office. And so when I came on board, it was very robust. You could see a bunch of different things that were already happening with the, the chat. And they had already gotten over the hurdles of what those policy issues are. So it's uh, a lot of the plans um, were accelerated and are adapted because they were planning for the future in the first place. I can only imagine what the attorney said when they jumped on and said, wait a minute, was what I'm saying here going to be a federal record? And how long does it have to last for? And who's exactly. going to capture it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so those we, issues were addressed very rapidly. It, that's exactly what the discussions were. So you're right. There was a lot of back briefing. There was a lot that came on board, but um, it really was taking advantage of the plants and accelerating them. Joe, jump Joe, in there. Just some comments on um, what, what Karen was talking about. I think for, it sounded like DHS was in a unique position in, in that even before the pandemic hit, probably had a very strong telework policy working from home and had had these tools generally aligned um, and using O365 as a service, right, enables you to scale up really, really quickly. Um, but but there's also a component of, of, of also scaling down, right? So you're not over investing in technology that when you don't need it anymore, it's just on that on that shelf. So I think I think a lot of agencies that, that we work with went into the pandemic not having these you know, functionalities, these capabilities. So they're having to procure this in a time where they're, you know, getting things through acquisition. There was, you know, uh, supply chain issues, getting hardware, um, people issues, getting this um, installed and, and implemented. So that as a service delivery model, especially for collaboration, uh, you know, probably really enabled DHS to kind of scale and, and just kind of blast this forward um, at a, at a, at, a, at a rate that in the traditional model really would even be possible. Before Angie jumps in, Joe, let me just do a quick follow-up for you. One of the things that you bring up is the ability not just to scale up, but to know when and how to scale down. Is that a conversation that you're seeing agencies starting to have as either people come back to the office? Because I think we'll get into it in a second about this hybrid environment, and then we can also bring some others into the discussion. But are you starting to see that conversation happen of, okay, what does scaling down look like and how much should we scale down? 5%, 10%, or, or is it more like the utility model where you can just plug in and, and unplug as, as needed? I think it's really the latter and it isn't collaboration. I mean, it, it's the shift from buying perpetual software to renting software, right? I, I don't want to own software. I want to subscribe to it. I want to use the features and functions that are applicable to me. And I have this requirement today Tomorrow, I may have an extra 25%. After that, I, I may, may go down 10. So I think it's, it's an industry shift to the subscription model across all things technology. And, and, I, and, I, and I think we're seeing the, the fruits of, of that model here. Angie, jump in, because you were going to say something after Karen mentioned it. Yeah, so what I was going to talk about is, and this may seem like a bit of a bird walk here, but, you know, with regard to like when we talk about telework or we talk about the use of all this technology and the tools and stuff that we're, that we're using, it's what's interesting, though, is that telework in the past, yes, we were very good at this and we've, and DHS has clearly knocked it out of the park when it comes to the equipment and, and our ability to tap into the networks and all those kinds of things. What we didn't anticipate, though, and what we didn't plan for was the fact that you might have a five-year-old standing behind you yelling at you that they need their princess dress zipped up, right? And so the distraction for the employees is like, is something that, that I think in the past teleworks never had to deal with. Um, the other thing is, is like these standard tours of duty, right? So yeah, we teleworked, but we teleworked on our normal tour of duty, whereas now, what we have is employees and oh by the way this will clear up to the executives as well because you know they have family dynamics as well but asking for things like hey can i start work at 10 o'clock which means that core hours are now impacted right and so what we're finding is we're having to look at all of our policies because it's not just about the technology it's about how are our employees going to work when can our employees work do we go to like you know, a 24 seven operation because, hey, that's really the only time that I'm able to jump on and get my work done is between midnight and 7 a.m. because, you know, my husband's home then and he can take, and the kids are in bed. And so now I can process that HR action that I would have processed before between eight and 4.30. And so 
it's really a combination of, I think what the technology has done and our ability to be spot on is first of all, it's taken, taken away that excuse, right? For why we can't get the work done. Um, but, and it's done it in a remarkable way. But what we're now faced with is the stresses of being on 24 seven almost. And so that's what I'm trying to, and the HR community is really trying to balance and then working with my colleagues, we're really starting to have conversations around how do we meet the needs of our employees where they're at in their personal situation and still get the mission of DHS done at the same time. Rich, let me ask you to jump in because you've been quiet sure. the whole segment here. Uh, this also puts a different burden on them from a security perspective because if somebody wants to come to the office at midnight, can you support them as an example? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jason. I appreciate that. I was gonna, about to jump in. So a couple of things, I'll get to that on the technology piece, just kind of to, to hit upon that again. Uh, you know, taking, uh, taking technology as an enabler, then also kind of uh, getting to the part of being able to monitor folks uh, using that technology. So on the first part, uh, from a personal security perspective, our folks who vet people who come into this department, uh, who vet all of our uh, employees and contract staff uh, have been able to do that virtually uh, for a long time. The vast majority of our personal security specialists have been uh, able to do that in a remote environment uh, with a secure network uh, that uh, gives them access to all of the uh, the appropriate records and PI and everything they need to do that. So that's been the enabler, will continue to be the enabler, and I think that, that we'll see probably an increased uh, amount of telework in that environment. On the flip side of that, uh, you know, uh, we've got more people in the telework environment beyond uh, the things that uh, Karen's folks do from uh, monitoring the networks. Obviously, uh, in my role, I have the Insider Threat Program. So uh, we as a department uh, in coordinate, obviously uh, with the help of CIO and, and lots of other folks have moved out pretty smartly uh, in expanding our Insider Threat Program monitoring capability beyond the classified networks into the a sensitive but unclassified network. So that gives us, that's an important insight. Some of the things that Angie alluded to with regard to um, uh, people in stress, uh, we can perhaps uh, avert or see where there may be some issues with uh, potential for uh, violence or, or other concerns that we can then relay to uh, the appropriate uh, uh, managers and uh, employee uh, specialists that help people out and kind of get ahead of that power curve. So. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, allows us to monitor but enable at the same time. Uh, to your question about folks coming in, uh, absolutely access control systems are, are there and allow them to come in. Uh, we have found from our perspective, we're able to do about uh, 85, 90% of our roles and responsibilities as a security element for the headquarters here. But that other 15% requires people to be in a classified space. So those are the ones who have been here uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, uh, working with our uh, partners in FPS and all that who are really 24-7, they're able to monitor the spaces, make sure we don't have somebody who's trying to exploit the fact that we have fewer employees in the space uh, or fewer employees in the vicinity, uh, you know, take advantage of that. So uh, uh, that's also our CCTV technology that allows us to do that in those locations where, where we have that. So Jason, the one thing that I think, and I and I know my other CXOs would probably want to jump in here, is uh, the actual plans that we've had to put in place for headquarters. Uh, there's a framework and there's guidance on this about how we have to take certain things into consideration in order to be able to open up the workplace, right? So we've been talking a lot about how we've been able to continue to do the things that we're doing um, because of network modernization, because of cloud, because of Office 365. But the other part of balancing this is, is how, how do we bring people back to work? Uh, and Angie's team has really given us a lot of tools to be able to go forward. So I know each of us, and I'm, I'm opening it, it up to my other CXOs, uh, is about the workplace itself and how we have to look at the guidance overall says, hey, look at what the environment is and follow the local government. But when you look at headquarters workforce, our local government spans 
really pretty broadly. It's the state of Virginia, the state of Maryland, the District of Columbia, and we have people who commute much farther out like myself that's in the state of West Virginia, right? And so we've really had to develop those war plans, taking into consideration everything else that everybody's talking about. And so I'm gonna throw it back to Angie and some of the other CXOs, because I know I really relied on them in order for me to put together what my workplace uh, return to work plan looks like for the CIO shop. But before they do that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back and when we have uh, the next segment, we can get into that a little bit. You're listening to the panel discussion, A Holistic Approach to Reopening Agency Offices, sponsored by Force 3 on Federal News Network. Whether your teams are going back to the office or working remote, the top priorities are to keep employees safe and the business of government running smoothly. The right security and collaboration technology can help your teams be successful no matter where they are physically located during these challenging times. Force 3 has been the trusted technology partner for civilian agencies and the DOD for over 25 years. Learn what we can do for you at force3.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, A Holistic Approach to Reopening Agency Offices, sponsored by Force 3 on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're listening. We're, we're hearing from the Homeland Security Department and how they're planning to reopen their offices. Our, my guests from the Homeland Security Department are Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer, Karen Evans, the Chief Information Officer, Tom Chalecki, the Chief Readiness and Support Officer, Tom Chalecki, the Chief Readiness Support Officer, and Rich McComb, the Chief Security Officer, all from the Homeland Security Department. We're also joined by Eric Stahl, the Director of Networking and Security at Force 3, and Joe Lazaro, the Collaboration Practice Manager, also at Force 3. At the end of that last segment, we started talking about the, the plans to reopen and how to get employees back safely, make sure they're productive. Angie, let me turn to you because I think something you brought up earlier on is, is really this is a people problem. The technology is great, the processes are great, but really, it's, it's about getting people comfortable and ensuring that all their needs are met, like you mentioned childcare. So talk about how you guys started to develop those reopening plans. Sure. I'm glad to do so, Jason. So that we, we took a multi-pronged approach to this, but there's a few things that we made sure that we got out to all of the leadership so that they could really kind of take this into consideration. For one of the first things that we do is regarding the virus itself, we make sure that always we update and provide to leadership the latest CDC guidance, right? With regard to it, for example, if somebody is exposed in the workforce, how long should they quarantine? How long should they isolate? When should they be able to come back to work? We also did this, by the way, for not just for those that are in an office environment, but we also provided that guidance with regard to those that uh, are on the front lines and are in mission critical positions uh, who really, quite frankly, have to work, continue to work. And so that was one of the first things that we did was set the stage. We always make sure that that CDC guidance is, is up to date. Next, we talked about, um, we just recently have put together for contact tracing. So as people do come back into the workforce, we wanna make sure that if someone, if there is an exposure situation, that we know exactly what the scripts are, who's gonna make the contact of the people, who's gonna follow up, uh, with the help of Karen's team, we were able to make sure that we worked with OMB to, to hit all the privacy wickets and stuff so that we can also, quite frankly, capture the contractors because it's not just about a federal workforce. We have contractors who sit side by side with our federal employees as well. So we always wanted to make sure um, that we were able to address our whole workforce uh, and not just the federal employees. We provided guidance with regard to social distancing. What is social distancing? How do you actually conduct social distancing? Tom talked about it a little bit earlier about the cohorts. Those cohorts were actually built off of the guidance that came out of how you would uh, appropriately do social distancing. And then face coverings. We covered as well, like when you'll wear them, where you'll wear those uh, face coverings. We did not make things mandatory. We made them recommendations, um, but, but they're strongly encouraged. And people, quite frankly, are doing their part and they're actually wearing their face coverings. We spend a lot of time explaining why wearing a face covering is important, not just for themselves, but to protect um, not only their colleague, but you know their fellow citizens as well. So we made sure that uh, as we were going through and addressing the, the come back to work guidance, that we addressed all the key factors that would actually make it viable for our employees to be able to, to come back to work. 
And then we, of course, map that against the phases. And as Karen was explaining, you know, each of the cities, the states, everybody has a different way of the of how they're interpreting not only the phase, but we had what, what's called gating criteria. And so in working with HHS, we were able to put together a dashboard for Tom's team and um, I can't remember who else's team that we worked with, but in particular with Tom's team, we put together all kinds of gating and phasing criteria that our components can tap into and they can look at any one point in time. They can pick a city, they can pick a zip code, they can pick where their buildings are, and they can know exactly what phase or gate that that particular locale is in. And then given that, they then have you know, the different steps in which they can then make the local decision with regard to bringing their workforce back in. So we did a whole comprehensive look at this. We're really quite proud of all the work that DHS has done on this. And, and I know that we've shared it with a lot of federal agencies as well, because um, I think one of the coolest things that we did uh, of all is that we made it very visual. So almost everything is done in pictures with very, very few words. And so by doing that, we were able to reach multiple audiences uh, and make it really clear for folks we then went one step further and put that on our employee resource page, which is public. And that allows all of our family members to be able to have access to this information as well, and to be able to see um, how this all interconnects between smart practices at work means smart practices at home. Because it does us no good whatsoever if we protect folks at work and at home, they disregard all of that. So we tried to make sure that they saw this as being treated as whole person and the whole situation uh, in order to bring our folks back to work safely. I know Tom wants Over. to jump in, but let me maybe ask Rich to, to weigh in here too, because one of the things that Angela said was about uh, contact tracing. I think that's been a huge challenge among a lot of different uh, organizations, whether public or private sector. How is the contract contact tracing working and from, from or how hopefully it will work? I think from our perspective, from the security element, as Tom alluded to earlier a little bit, we can, uh, you know, uh, use today the, the access control capabilities that we have to figure out who's in spaces. Obviously, as Nancy mentioned, uh, you know, contact tracing we've had, unfortunately, within my area we've had uh, you know a number of folks who have tested positive and we've we've gone through that process uh, of, uh, of uh, you know kind of I'll say the old-fashioned contact tracing and it seems to have worked well I think uh, some of the lessons learned we've had is uh, doing it quickly uh, making uh, making the notification very quickly and in the case of uh, where you have a customer uh, front-facing uh, uh, element that may have had somebody positive is, is uh, communicating with your customers uh, in a very succinct uh, way. So uh, we, we've been able to do that and, and obviously we, uh, we look forward to the continued improvements uh, that the department's gonna bring on board to help us make that uh, even faster uh, than it has been. The good news, uh, as Angie alluded to, our employees, I think, have been very uh, compliant. They uh, have not come to work when they, when they, if they feel sick. Obviously, we do know some people are asymptomatic. Uh, but uh, by and large, I think our workforce has been uh, very compliant and really, uh, at least from a headquarters perspective, uh, certainly minimized uh, our need to do a lot of that, I think. The, uh, one of the things that I will mention, uh, you, you know, when it comes to the facilities, uh, we, we did uh, look at uh, uh, thermal screening, uh, taking people's temperatures part of the entry control process. We provided some broad guidance for the department. Uh, once again, one size doesn't fit all, so some folks are telling people to uh, take their temperatures before they leave home. Uh, some, some locations, uh, particularly where you have a high density of folks, uh, they're doing touchless uh, 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 IR thermometers prior, prior to coming into the space. We're doing some of that. And then out at uh, the headquarters, we implemented a thermal imaging technology that's really a kind of a self-service. It's a kiosk, you walk up, it takes your temperature, and then we'll issue you a, a pass, if you will, that indicates that you or below the uh, threshold, the CDC recommended threshold, as far as a uh, temperature screening. And it's it worked very well. We've gone through several iterations, uh, but we believe uh, that this is a more sustainable approach. It's not been mandated or directed that the department do it, but it certainly a, uh, provides us a good model and we've been able to handle throughput for the headquarters and we think we'll be able to uh, even handle more as more individuals come to work and it provides the workforce, I think, a, uh, not only a real check on the, the symptom, but also a sense of safety that 
the department uh, really is looking for the workforce to make sure they stay safe and secure. All right, Tom, jump in because we got about a minute or so, a minute and a half. So give me about 30 seconds and I want to get in Joe and or Eric one last comment. Sure thing. So, uh, you know, we, we built Angie's plan was the foundation and really there's six key points that we focus on, which was prepare the workforce, prepare the facility, which is in, in, in our lane, control access, social distancing plan, reduce touch points and then communicate for confidence. And really the bottom line is the key thing. And the, the struggle here is uh, the enterprise DHS focus, which is the policy, and then the local execution. You know, in logistics, we have a principle of centralized planning, decentralized execution, and that's really what this is going to come down to. Uh, my offices are open. You know, Angie mentioned the social psychological impacts of this. If folks need to go in and have those face-to-face -face meetings, they can do it, and they can do it safely. I'm confident of that. Or we can continue telework. I mean, the office is open, but the schools aren't. And I have folks that flat out cannot go into the office, and that's okay too, because we're able to do the mission as we build it right now. So, bottom line is, Jason, we reserve the right to get smarter. This thing evolves. Uh, we're going to evolve with it. And uh, primarily, it's keep us, our workforce safe and do the DHS mission. Over. All right. All right, Joe, uh, Eric, you get, you get about 30 seconds or less. Uh, future, you heard what DHS said. What's the future going to look like? What, what should agencies keep in mind as, as they go forward? G give me one thing they should keep in mind. I know it's hard. It's just, I, I guess, shortly, I, I think Angie mentioned the human element. So I think a technology island is bad. M multiple islands is worse. So as people return uh, to work, marrying up your existing systems with these newly instantiated working from home systems, do they work together? What's the user experience? What training is involved? User adoption? It's all questions that, that have to be asked and explored. All right, and unfortunately we are out of time, so we will ask and, and explore those questions maybe another time. But first, let me thank my guests for, uh, for joining us today. From the Homeland Security Department, we had Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer, Karen Evans, the Chief Information Officer, Tom Chalecki, the Chief Readiness Support Officer, and Rich McComb, the Chief Security Officer, we were also joined by Eric Stoll, the Director of Networking and Security at Force3, and Joe Lazaro, the Collaboration Practice Manager, also at Force3. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for taking the time today. You've been listening to the panel discussion, A Holistic Approach to Reopening Agency Offices, sponsored by Force3 on Federal News Network. I've been your host, Jason Miller. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Force3. Thank you for listening to the discussion, A Holistic Approach to Reopening Agency Offices, sponsored by Force 3 on Federal News Network.